Uh, yesterday was bittersweet for our family. Uh, it was the final between the Sydney Swans and uh, the GWS Giants in the AFL, and it is bittersweet for our family. Our family is split down the middle in our support for the Sydney Swans and the Giants. Yesterday, there could be only one winner and one loser, and so for half of our family, it was sweet victory. And for the other half of our family, it was bitter loss. Bitter sweet. There's always next week. Now, the, the gospel message, the message of what God is doing in the world through Jesus, is bittersweet. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, to the one, it is the stench of death, to the other, the fragrance of life. 2 Corinthians 2.16. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. 1 Corinthians 1.18. Bittersweet. For those who believe, the gospel message is life and hope and joy. For those who reject God's promise of forgiveness, it's sadness and death. Now, the vision of Revelation 10 and 11 deals with what is bittersweet. It takes us to the heart of the gospel message of what God is doing in the world and shows us that it is bittersweet. In chapter 10, we see this sweet and sour scroll, a symbol of the joy and the sadness of the gospel message. In Revelation 11, we see the victory and defeat of the church in bearing witness to Jesus. It is bittersweet. In the final part of Revelation 11, we see the mercy and justice of God in the final judgment. It is bittersweet. Now, while these two chapters land for us between the blowing of the six trumpets and we're waiting for the blowing of the seventh trumpet... What we have here in Revelation 10 and 11 is not just a description of what happens between the sixth and the seventh trumpet. Uh, We kind of take a sidetrack in these two chapters to get a bigger vision of what is going on with the blowing of the trumpets through chapters 8 to 9 and even to get a, a bigger vision of what is going on across this whole age from Jesus' death, resurrection and ascension into heaven and his return. Revelation 10 and 11 takes, it kind of zooms out to get this bigger perspective on time across a a, a bigger period. It's kind of like a focal chapter. There's 22 chapters in Revelation and if you kind of pick out about the middle... Uh, The back end of Revelation 11 is the middle. We're in the middle here and everything is kind of focused in on it. It's a bit of a a focal point. Uh, So let me give you a bit of a a, a run-up from where we've come uh, back in Revelation 1 to see how we get to this uh, focal point. Remember, Revelation has been given to reveal Jesus to make known the true Jesus, to encourage and equip Christians who are in hard times to persevere in following Jesus. And so Revelation 1, the vision starts with a vision of the true Jesus, who he truly is. 
Revelations 2 and 3, we go into some letters that were addressed specifically to some churches in the first century in ancient Roman Asia. And in those letters, we see what it is that the true Jesus values as people live in faithfulness to him and persevere with him. Chapters 4 and 5 give us a vision into heaven where we see a throne and on the throne is the lamb that was slain. Jesus and all of heaven's worship and all of eternity is oriented around the praise and worship of Jesus. Chapter 6 to 7, we see that Jesus is gathering a great multitude across all of history from every nation and tribe and tongue and for those who belong to him, they will have the promise of eternal life. Last week in chapters 8 and 9, as we saw the blowing of the trumpets, we were seeing the unfolding of God's judgment. God's judgment that comes as God puts the world right, those who reject him will be judged. Now we've got all of that behind us and the perspective that we get from chapters 10 and 11 as we, we zoom out is to grasp more and more the bitter, sweet reality of the gospel, of what God is doing in the world. And now this big picture perspective that we get to today is given to encourage and equip Christians for persevering with Jesus. During this time between Jesus' ascension and Jesus' return, now the central image in uh, Revelation 10 is a sweet and sour scroll, uh, not a delicious Chinese dish, but something that is both tasty sweet and bitterly sour. These verses are an account of John's special commission to proclaim the gospel. The commission we see in verse 1 comes from a mighty angel, an angel who is closely associated with Jesus. We can tell by the description of of the cloud and the rainbow and the sun and the fire and the voice like a lion's roar. This mighty angel is closely associated with who Jesus is and what Jesus is doing. This angel brings the commission to John that he might announce the mystery of God, the mystery that prepares people for the final trumpet. Follow again with me from verse 7 as we read. Verse 7, Revelation chapter 10, verse 7. But in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me once more, Go, take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. John is commissioned to announce the mystery of God, to prepare people for the blowing of the seventh trumpet, the final judgment. And now the mystery of God that John is to proclaim, the mystery of God is the cross. 
The cross of Jesus, which is at the centre of God's great plans in eternity to deal with the judgment of sin and bring salvation for his people. It's not a mystery because it's difficult to understand or hard to work out, but because it was needed to be revealed and made known. And for John, uh, this is his job, to proclaim the mystery of God, but it is a job that is bittersweet. It'll taste like honey in his mouth, but as he proclaims it in the reality of judgment on those who reject the message, it will turn his stomach bitter sour. The gospel message is is wisdom to one and foolishness to another. It is the aroma of life to one and the stench of death to another. It is joy and sadness. But it's a message that John is compelled to share, verse 11. Then I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages and kings. Now, the reason this is recorded here for us is to encourage all who receives John's message to have the same conviction for sharing that gospel message and to so feel the bittersweet joy and sadness of the gospel message that we might be urgent and warm and persuasive in making Jesus known. John needs this encouragement The church that he was writing to in the first century, they need this encouragement, we need this encouragement. Because, as we're about to see in Revelation 11, a conviction to make Jesus known usually leads to hardship and suffering. A conviction to make Jesus known doesn't make life easier. It is bittersweet. And so as the vision continues in Revelation 11, uh, we see the church and those who are bearing testimony to Jesus under attack. Those who belong to Jesus, those who seek to bear testimony, bear witness to Jesus, will be opposed. They will be marginalised. They will be rejected. They will be persecuted. They will be seemingly defeated. See, a conviction to be a missionary in another country is not a way to move yourself up in the world. To sign up to be a gospel preacher is not a way to move up in the world. To be somebody who follows Jesus and bears honest and truthful testimony to him is not a way to win friends and influence people. It is a path of opposition of marginalisation, of being rejected, of being persecuted and being seemingly defeated. But what we see here in these verses is that because God promises eternal protection and ultimate victory, we're able to endure in that task, able to endure in bearing faithful witness to Jesus. Let's have a look at these verses. Verses 1 and 2 talk about a measuring of the temple of God and counting the number of worshippers. Now there are some really difficult and disputed verses here. Uh, This is the chapter that I've had to work the hardest on to understand in Revelation so far and the one where I've left lots of things unread. There's lots of background uh, in the Old Testament here uh, to what we're reading in the books of Ezekiel and the book of Daniel 
Uh, But without explaining all of the details, and I can't explain all the details, let me put the simple nutshell bit that we need to take away for us this morning. Uh, Measuring and counting uh, is an image of God knowing. Uh, this, 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 This measuring of the temple and counting who belongs to it is an image that God knows all who belong to him. It's to be a comfort, a comfort for Christians enduring hard times to be assured that God knows them, to be assured that God knows us. In this image of of measuring and counting, we are one of the numbers, not just as a statistic, but as someone who is known to God, It's a comfort for Christians enduring hard times, a comfort for Christians who who might be facing poverty because of their allegiance to Jesus, God knows. For Christians who might be hiding in Iraq, a comfort to them that God knows. Christians who are enduring hardship in labour camps in North Korea, God knows. You and I struggling with our doubts and our fear in bearing testimony to Jesus, God knows. God measures and accounts for his people. He knows. Verse 3 tells us of two witnesses. The two witnesses are a symbol for the whole church all who belong to Jesus, who are bearing testimony to Jesus. Now, it's possibly that two are mentioned uh, because it has Smyrna and Philadelphia in mind, the two churches that are mentioned in the letters in chapter 2 and 3. Smyrna and Philadelphia were the only churches of those seven that were not accused of unfaithfulness in their witness to Christ. They are models for being witnesses to Jesus. But a symbol for the whole church. And what we see here in these verses is that the church will be empowered by God, will know the presence of God, will be protected by God and enabled by God to do his work of bearing witness. Follow with me again in verse 3. Chapter 11, verse 3. I will give power to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1,260 days. That's a symbolic number for this whole period between Jesus' ascension and Jesus' return. Uh, God is going to give power to those two witnesses, uh, clothed in sackcloth. Verse 4, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. These men have power to shut up the sky so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying and they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. This is telling us that those who bear witness to to God, those who prophesy, those who tell the things of God that he has revealed will be empowered by God, will be protected by God, will be enabled, effective in their work. But those who bear witness to Jesus, the church in this age, 
will live after the pattern of the cross. Just as Christ suffered, those who belong to him will suffer. The church will suffer as Christ suffered. Those who bear witness to Jesus will seem as defeated as he was. Verse 7. Now when they had finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. Now we know that Jesus was crucified in Jerusalem. Figuratively, Sodom and Egypt represent evil was evil that crucified Jesus. Verse 9, for three and a half days men from every people, tribe, language and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them buried. A period of shame and seeming defeat but it is only three and a half days, a seemingly insignificant time compared to the time scale that God has on view. And then verse 10, the inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts. They will high-five each other because these two prophets, the, the, the church had tormented, uh, these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. The torment of the gospel message, the bitter, sweet message. Do you sometimes feel like that describes our world now? In Australia at the moment, it, it feels like the church is in a war. Yeah, not with bodies being left on the ground and, and not buried. And, but it feels like we're in a war with secularism. There, there are debates about the place of, of a safe school coalition in public schools. There's, a, there's, a, there's an ongoing and constant political push for same-sex marriage, suggestions that a national plebiscite will do more harm than good. There's a growing argument and pressure to limit religious freedom, who religious groups can and can't employ and, 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 and what religious leaders can and can't say publicly. It feels like the church is in a war with secularism and sometimes I feel like it's all too much. Sometimes I just feel like it's too tiring and even too divisive to be involved in it. But we need to remember, this is not a battle to be won. Though the church might look defeated, though we might feel downtrodden and defeated, we're not in a, in, in a battle that we need to stand up in and, 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 and rise above it. The, the nature of the church is, is to be marginalised. We're right where God would have us be. The nature of the church is to be sometimes hated, just like Jesus was. The nature of the church is to be seemingly defeated. And our role is not to win. Natalie prayed for us earlier as the, the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church across the whole of Australia gathers this week and debating amongst other things how the Presbyterian Church might respond to a change in the Marriage Act and, and one of the proposals uh, is that Presbyterian ministers withdraw from 
the, the, the marriage act in no longer being marriage celebrants of the state. Now, that's not a done deal. That's being discussed and debated this week. Among lots of other things about how we respond to social issues and public policy. One of my great prayers for my brothers and sisters who are meeting this week, ministers and elders together, is that they don't draw up battle lines, that we don't get into a fight, that we don't seek to rise above and win. Now, now of course, we can and need to speak about social issues and public policy. It's very important that we have a voice in in a same-sex marriage discussion. But in the midst of that discussion... In the days ahead that face us, in the conversations that we have in our workplaces and in our families, when we perhaps go to a poll to to vote in a plebiscite, and with whatever other social issues and public policy come up, in it and in the wake of it, whatever comes, we must conduct ourselves in a way that makes us no less effective in making Jesus known. Now, there could be serious consequences for us in following Jesus. There could be financial implications. Churches may lose their recognition as charities and there'll be changed tax implications for that that will cost us. We may lose access to meeting in public spaces. We may lose access to meeting in this building. We may lose access to meeting in the school at Harrison. Already one church in New South Wales this year has had to uh, leave the public school where they meet because of a sermon that was preached a few years ago and posted on the internet from Leviticus where the preacher had said something about same-sex marriage and homosexuality. I know that our sermon series that we did two years ago on Leviticus was downloaded by same-sex marriage campaigners and used against me on a Facebook page against school chaplaincy to discredit me being the chair of the local chaplain's board. Some preachers in Australia have faced legal action for their comments about God's view on relationships and marriage. Their comments comments weren't unbiblical. They weren't unreasonable comments. But because of them, they were opposed and marginalised and seemingly defeated. Now, we don't need to draw up the battle lines. We don't need to rise above them to win. What we need to work hard at is being truthful and winsome with what God has entrusted to us. And even if hard times come, even if harder times come, John and the first century Christians that he was writing to, they knew hard times. They were living at a time where Christians were used as patio heaters by the Roman emperor. This vision encourages us to persevere. Verse 11. After the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them. And they stood on their feet and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here! And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. 
At that very hour, there was a severe earthquake and a tent of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. God will vindicate. God will give new life to those who belong to Jesus and death to those who reject Jesus. It is bittersweet. That vindication comes with the final judgment that is described by the seventh, uh, described by the seventh uh, trumpet. And these are the verses that bring us to the focal point of Revelation. This is the centre of the book. This is a vision of the world put right under Christ. It is bittersweet. Verse 14, the second woe has passed, the third woe is coming. Another perspective on the final judgment day. Verse 15, the seventh angel sounded his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven which said, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. This is the world put right under the rule of Christ just as God had said it would be and just as God had planned it to be from the creation of the world. Again here we see in heaven the 24 elders, verse 16, focused in on the throne and on God. They are praising God and they are worshipping him for his justice and his mercy. He brings just punishment on those who are angry at him Punishment on those who reject his world and reward for his servants with mercy. Verse 18. Let's go verse 17. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and you have begun to reign. But if Jesus is going to reign, verse 18, the nations were angry and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your saints and those who reverence your name, both small and great, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. It is a bittersweet image. The joy of God putting the world right under the rule of Christ, but the bitter sad reality that that brings death and judgment and God's justice on those who are angry at him and have rejected him. It is bittersweet. Uh, James Hamilton, an American Baptist pastor, uh, captured this vision that's here before us in a poem uh, to help his congregation to grasp the perspective that these chapters bring to our life. And it goes like this. Through flame and flood, with plague and blood, the gospel is proclaimed. The spirit flows, the church it grows, the beast, he is enraged. Measuring rod and arm outstretched, the father knows his own. As martyrs die, the saints will sigh. And they cry out, how long? And then at last, the trumpet blast, and Christ will reign as king. 
creation sings, the praises ring, for this the world was made. These chapters bring to a focal point the whole bittersweet message of Revelation. They bring to a focal point the bittersweet reality of what God is doing in eternity. He has given to us a vision of the true Jesus, written to us in letters to the churches so that we might know what faithfulness to Jesus looks like. Shown us into heaven that Jesus is at the centre of heaven's worship. He has shown us a gathering of a great multitude and the promise of eternal life for those who belong to him. He has shown us the reality, the sad reality of judgment that comes as he puts the world right and death comes on those who reject him. bittersweet reality and message. All who turn to Jesus receive the sweet joy of forgiveness and mercy. All who reject Jesus will know the bitter sadness of God's justice. Which is it for you? Sweet joy or bitter sadness? The more we know and experience the sweet joy, I think the more we experience the bitter sadness. This is not just given that we might choose between one or the other and, 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 and forget about the reality of the opposite. But it's given so that the more and more we might know the sweet joy of forgiveness and mercy, we feel the bitter sadness of God's justice so that we might persevere even in hard and harder times in in trusting Jesus, in obeying Jesus and urgently, passionately, persuasively, truthfully, winsomely reaching out in making Jesus known.